doesn't matter where it comes from. And that is be- and then it becomes a non-issue for pacing. disaster area in new york city i'm your host shane and i'm your host ishan and welcome to episode 114 of total party thrill a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours in this episode we're talking about resource management and pacing challenges but first the rogue traders learn the art of the deal in the dynasty unwarranted campaign and later the pacemaker masters the spark of life in the character creation forge Wait, wait, learn the art of the deal? Does that mean that they learn how to basically get screwed in real estate? Isn't that what you do? <laughs> but then you just tell everyone. Oh, well, don't spoil it. We haven't revealed it oh, yet. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so um, apologies for last week's episode. We uh, That was the first time recording in my new apartment, so we're not quite used to it. Also, I had to hold my microphone in hand the entire time, which we've now realized has screwed with our levels. Yeah, uh, You still are holding your microphone. I am, but this is the second episode. And we realized the mistake, <laughs> so I'm hoping this will be better. I'll fix it and post it. It'll be fine. Yeah. We'll be, Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll be buying some new microphone stands for our, our new digs and, and figuring this out. But so uh, we appreciate your patience as we kind of get this worked out. Speaking of patience. Thank you, everyone, who has donated to us on Patreon. Very, very shortly, there will be some T-shirts headed your way. Um, If we haven't already asked you for sizes, that will be happening very soon. And in addition to that, there was the promise of a raffle for two prize packs. And since it is currently September 24th, (laughs) uh, we don't know who is in the raffle yet or who has won. So we will find out next week in uh, episode 115. We'll announce the winner. We've also got a new-ish Unearthed Arcana to talk about. Yeah, we skipped August because it was dull and boring and I didn't want to talk about how to give experience in D&D. But we're behind on September. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, and September is pretty cool. So this one was new races uh, for the Eladrin, which is an elf subtype, and then the Gith, the both the Gith Yankee and Gith Sarai. So I've got to say that these write-ups really closely mimic the feel and the play style of the races in previous editions. So the Eladrin that they're doing here is very obviously the fourth edition Eladrin, which is essentially an elf and not like the third edition Eladrin, which is basically like a force of nature and a whirlwind. Mm-hmm. Though, I don't know, it's got a little bit of a force of nature whirlwind kind of vibe to it. Yeah, tiny bit. All right, so it's an elf subclass. So when you're reading it, remember, it already gets the plus two decks from being an elf. It gets, uh, you know, the immunity to sleep, the dark vision, the resistance to charm. Right. In addition, it gets... Uh, an increase to either intelligence or charisma, which I don't know if there's any other subclass who gives an option. So that's interesting. You know, in fourth edition, when races came out later, they started getting an option for which ability score they increased. Right. And then they actually went back and added it to the initial races in the first place. So I don't know if that's going to end up happening 
Yeah. Fifth edition seems to have an, an ethos where they just sort of leave the old stuff alone right. and don't really change it. Or if they update it, they say, you can still use the old stuff. So they also get phase step, which is basically you can use the misty step spell on a short or long rest once it's spelt and labeled its own way, but it is effectively the misty step spell. Yeah, which is, I think, pretty much exactly the ability that Eladrin had in fourth edition. And then there is an ability called Shifting Seasons. So um, part of the theme of the Eladrin that we didn't mention earlier was the idea that you are tied emotionally to a season. So there, you know, Aren't we all? Yeah, right? Um, so there's autumn, winter, spring, and summer, obviously. Um, those have some personality trait uh, effects that we'll talk about in a bit. But from a mechanical standpoint you have within the shifting seasons ability you uh, after every short or long rest you choose which season is most dominant for you and that grants you one of four cantrips so autumn gives you friends winter gives you chill touch spring gives you minor illusion and summer gives you firebolt this is a pretty good lineup of cantrips friends has the problem that it makes people hate you after you use it mm-hmm. chill touch is all right minor illusion is amazing and firebolt uh, does quite a bit of damage and i like that you can use either intelligence or charisma whichever you want as opposed to the stock uh, the high elf for example which gets any cantrip but has to use intelligence right yeah that that actually seems like a bigger concern than getting to choose which ability score you improve is that you're you're also sort of optimizing all of this towards one direction where a lot of other races are weakened by not being synergized with their primary ability. Well, the 4E Eladrin was one of the stronger races. Yeah, indeed. (laughs) And then there's this personality trait thing where their personality traits might change depending on what uh, season they are aligned with from a story perspective, and then that can shift if they feel a strong emotion I think it's perfectly fine as it is because it's optional. I'm a little bit worried that we're moving a little toward Kender territory. Yeah. So I think it's fine if you choose the trait by season and you kind of keep them thematically grouped and you're sort of moving directionally within the same theme. Um, One of the suggestions is that to add some chaos to your character, you may roll on these tables each time you change seasons. Great. (laughs) I now have multiple personalities. Yeah. Um, this also reminds me a lot of the second edition Goliaths, the half giants in Dark Sun, uh, yeah. which were half giants of chaos and had daily alignment changes. <laughs> so great. <laughs> Just don't seem to be able to get this house built. Like, I'm not sure why. <laughs> who am I going to be today? You know, I-, I will say it is an interesting personality quirk for. A, an NPC Eladrin to have, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're sort of playing up that like unseely trickster fay yep. archetype. You know, you just have no idea what uh, their outlook is going to be at the end of this sentence. Right. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think it really plays up the fay faction. I think it could be a bit concerning as a PC. We've also got the Gith. So both the Gith Yankee and the Gith Therai, which those of you who know their their background stories know that they hate each other. They both used to be um, a single slave race of the Illithids. And then the Yankee went off to be pirates in the astral plane, Mm -hmm. lawful evil, uh, worship a lich queen. And the Githzerai contemplate the multiverse as monks and their monasteries in limbo. 
they go to limbo because it's just harder there mm-hmm. <laughs> they love things that are tough right so all gith get a plus one to intelligence so is this the first time that we've seen a, a race where they get a plus one as the base and then the sub race gets the plus two uh that's possible yes uh, i mean mechanically it doesn't really change anything but it does make there's more differentiation between the sub races and i actually like that because people tend to consider githyanki and githzerai like different races right. right different peoples right githyanki will get a plus two to strength they will also gain a language and proficiency in a skill and then they also get proficiency with light and medium armor and basically this is all setting up for <laughs> they're a warlike marauding people right yeah, and they're pirates i hate this kind of quote-unquote bonus because it's supposed to be oh great they're all good at being fighters and they're you know like you said warlike but it just means that if you take fighter or a martial class you don't get anything you out get, of it right right i mean you do still get the skill in the uh language but that's right but who cares marginal. about the armor and the and the martial proficiencies and then you get some psionics yeah so you gain the mage hand cantrip which is you know minor telekinesis then at third level you can cast jump once per long rest and then at fifth level you can cast misty step once per long rest you're locked into using intelligence for those but, but oh, wait, you don't it doesn't, it doesn't, who cares? intelligence right, so, so what does it matter <laughs> yeah <laughs> It is interesting to note that psionics is here just reflavored arcane magic. Similar to the illithids in the uh, Volos Guide as well. Right. And and the PHB, I guess. Yeah. And then they talked a bit about it in the mystic write-up, although none of that is set in stone. But I believe that this indicates that that is the direction that we're going to move in, that uh, magic and psionics are are not transparent to each other; that they affect each other in the same ways. Yeah, psionics don't use material components, right? And I far prefer that to adding an entire new like system. Or you know what typically happened was, uh, we need a psionic version of this spell, so let's change it a little bit and then give it a different name. Right. So then the githzerai uh, instead gain plus two to wisdom. And then they have monastic training, which grants them a plus one bonus to AC when they aren't wearing medium or heavy armor or using a shield. Uh, This is, as you mentioned, they're basically monks contemplating the universe in limbo. So they gain an extra plus one to their AC as a monk. And I like that this is something that is beneficial, even if you were playing the archetypal Gisarai, who is a monk. Who is a monk. Yeah, Yeah, it stacks. Yeah. They also gain psionics, so they'll also have mage hand. And then at third level, they will gain shield once per long rest. And at fifth, they gain detect thoughts once per long rest. So I know you pointed out that the Githyanki actually get more mechanically uh, because they get that uh, tool and language. Uh, skill and language. Skill or tool. Okay. Language and skill or tool. Who takes a tool? Uh, fair. <laughs> <laughs> Just take it with your stupid background. Right. Take the skill. Right. <laughs> You're stuck with the tool anyway. <laughs> but... Mage Hand Shield and Detect Thoughts, I think, is better than Mage Hand Jump, which is garbage. And Misty Step. And Misty Step. Now, Misty Step I love, but Shield is just amazing, especially on a monk. Yeah, and Detect Thoughts is very, very good in a lot of situations. Mm-hmm. Like it's a utility spell, sure, but it's a very good utility spell. Yeah, totally agree. So I think, on the whole, all of these are quite s- strong races. My only worry is that they... They don't feel too strong. It's just in comparison to some things in the PHB, they might be stronger than those and therefore a bit too strong. Yeah. 
I, I think they're all within the realm. Um, Eladrin is probably a little stronger than the other elves, and that's, you know, maybe a, an issue if you're a, a high elf. Yeah, I agree, especially if I was going to already take one of these cantrips. But but also, like, you've got to use intelligence for it. Uh, Charisma spreads it out a little bit. And the wood elf is okay, but they don't have the best, like, sub-brace abilities. Right. So I might just take an Eladrin anyway for Misty Step. Yeah, yeah. But overall, definitely uh, move in the, the right direction with Unearthed Arcana. Happy to see stuff that's cool. All right, so speaking of a move in the right direction, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games, and the crew of the His Enduring Light find themselves still on the feudal world of Gontelgrim. I cannot wait to get off this stupid planet. Why are you in such a hurry? You guys are heroes for defeating an orc war boss and ending the fight for survival. Yeah, but this planet sucks. <laughs> you... That's why we came here, to take advantage of their horrible situation. Ed... While here, you <laughs> solved a war and uh, got charged with heresy. Right. Being a hero is overrated. Hero and heresy begin with the same letters. Right. <laughs> uh, you did finally beat that charge uh, from an overzealous Imperial Guard com- commissar. I'm going to kill him later. <laughs> the, that's the type He's of petty thing you would do. on the list. And then you'll really be a heretic. <laughs> <laughs> he has a bolt pistol, right? He probably does. Yes. But as you may recall, your original reason for coming to Gontelgrim was to trade a whole pile of Imperial ration bars from the agri-world of Novabella uh, in exchange with uh, uh, some additional agricultural equipment that would help them continue and increase the surplus that they produce, which, of course, you will turn into profits. Fortunately, Imperial ration bars are so inedible that they also don't seem to rot. (laughs) Yeah. So they've just been sitting in the hold. Yep. It's fine. <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll keep. <laughs> so there are two competing factions who want to make this deal with us because it would enable them to increase both their profit but also their political power on this awful dump of a planet. It's still their home. <laughs> so you Yeah, know. yeah, no, I, I see why they like it. <laughs> yeah, they're squabbling over it for good reason. <laughs> I'm from a garden world. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Flair, uh, your... Psyker immediately sets up meetings with both factions, uh, one of whom is led by Duke Fenris, who's basically the planetary governor, though they're not fully part of the Imperium. And not yet. the other, led by his primary rival, Lord Vadon. So we're presented, as a good GM should do, you presented us with two enticing options. And... The need for spending some XP, as you recall. <laughs> because as soon as you set those meetings... I believe Trix and Flair set to learning negotiations in a crash course overnight. <laughs> we finally got some time to like level up. You got one <laughs> night, and you spent it taking all of the skill. <laughs> so Vaynon offers a more profitable deal, but it would threaten the political stability of the planet, which of course means that while we might have one good deal now, we may not be able to continue reaping that benefit without actually having to like come back here and fix things. Right. And we hate fixing things. Yeah. Duke Fenris is offering you lower margins, but you know a lower risk of ever having to come back to this forsaken planet. Which is what made us decide that we're going to go with Fenris. Uh, we took the safer option, we go back to the ship, and we finally, finally, finally chart a course to go someplace much, much better much more fitting your station in life. That's right. Port Aquila. 
the location of not one but two massacres. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Portaquilla is sort of the last imperial bastion before the uncharted void beyond and something of like the rogue traders tortuga which if you know anything about this party is pretty much where we belong it's it's like going home and we'll find out what kind of homecoming you had next week so this week we are talking about resource management and pacing in game this uh, came from a suggestion on twitter from at kermavexus so they say could you talk about managing resources for PCs and DMs via encounters and rests? I just started my first long campaign, and I'm trying to balance. So on the DM side, pacing, rests, and encounters to challenge players as they level and gain power, and then how to deal with things like rations without feeling like it's accounting. On the PC side, how do you know when to spend your spell slots or to use things that recharge on short rests or long rests? Uh, if you're not playing uh, 5e D&D, you know, when do you use that uh, daily ability or, or when do you use uh, gear up when you're not really sure when you're going to have time to go buy more? Yeah, that's a good point. This is going to be a little bit focused on D&D because D&D is very much a game of resource management. But then so is Deadlands. It's just how many bullets did I bring? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so the resources might change, but I think the... The general idea uh, applies elsewhere. Um, most games have some resource management element. Yeah, even ones where you don't have a finite number, where like you know, you know, roll to make a stress test to see if you can cast another spell. It's a bit like uh, playing blackjack and knowing like, do I hit again? Right. Because that could be great or it could be very bad. So we're going to start with GMs because that ends up informing how the PCs play in a game. So I think the big question here is pacing your rests and encounters, right? How many encounters do you have between rests? How often do you let the PCs rest? Uh, how difficult are the encounters in between? You know, what does your workday look like? And how do you structure that? Yeah, you know, if you've ever played a D&D video game, or I guess really pretty much any video game where you can like heal or refresh abilities on a rest, you know that if the AI of the game is not that smart and you can just sort of leave the room and then rest... The game is super easy right. because you just rest as much as you need to and you're always facing every obstacle fresh. Right. And so the DMG has recommendations around that, right? It's always assuming something looking like a dungeon crawl. So you get like a couple encounters, one or two between short rests, and then, you know, five or more encounters in a day between long rests. But realistically, like, that's not how every game of D&D gets played anymore, right? Like, most people aren't just kicking down doors and clearing a room of orcs and then kicking down another door and clearing a room of oozes and then, you know, facing a trap. Yeah, and when was the, when was the last time we actually played, like, through a dungeon? Um, It's been a while. I Like, we've done, like, catacombs and stuff, which are, like, a big open room and then long corridor and then, like, a giant cavern, you know? Yeah. Um. Well, the last time we were really on a timer where we were forced to have multiple encounters without resting, it's probably been, like, a year or two. Uh, we had maybe some of the in Dark Sun, maybe some of our mm. more like military campaign sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. We had we were burning resources pretty hard to just survive in the desert. Yeah, and we do a lot of underground stuff too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's because it's safer there, right? Um, but be before we get into you know how to adapt that and and how to look at that, let's talk about what we mean by resources when we talk about resource management. So it doesn't necessarily need to be a physical object or a piece of gear. It could be 
an ability that has a cooldown or slots that you can use. You know, once per short rest, once per long rest. Obviously, Vancian spell slots, yep. which we both kind of hate. Or but power exist. points or spell points mm-hmm. or mana. Anything that is depleted until some other time in the future. Right. Uh, you also have things like magic items or, or other items that have cooldowns or charges or limited uses in a period or consumables, which are just one use in a period of ever. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, uh, the old style magic wand that had charges mm-hmm. or a staff and just once you're done with the 50, they're gone forever. Right. Or it could be something like in D&D, you have inspiration or in other games, you get uh, fate points or bennies or even in some games you have xp that you're given uh in the session that you can spend to have things happen in the game i mean D has that too in third edition where you spend xp to create magic items which actually was always a good idea <laughs> <laughs> um I, I will say you can also think a little bit about actions in the action economy as a resource that you manage um that comes more from a character design perspective but that was one of the beefs with fourth edition of maximizing utility of your minor action right because you're limited to only a certain number of actions in a round so you want to get the most you can out of those actions we're typically not talking about things like food or water or ammunition that you're tracking unless you're playing a game or you know maybe like a short arc where that's really important yeah if that's specifically sort of the purpose of the story and the purpose of the game then that would qualify as well So the whole reason that you have resources that need to be managed is to offer a challenge to your players in the first place. And in order to do that well and in a fun way, you need to understand how they are using those resources and then adapt to their behavior. Yeah, and and so what that means in the course of a campaign, right, is that early on you just want to throw some things at them and see how they respond, right? Understand. Uh, a, A boulet. Well, okay, maybe don't first level. Maybe don't throw Boulet no. at first level characters. Tiamat. I maybe not. Boom, Tiamat. Hey, it's fine <laughs> if you're like level seventeen. <laughs> it's a random encounter table. I rolled. I rolled double zeros. Yeah, well, you maybe don't start with random encounters. <laughs> three Tiamats. Yes. How did they come in pack of threes? <laughs> oh, second edition. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but but the whole point here is to understand how do they use their resources right given the the general threat level of the encounter you know are they blowing their high level spells very early Um, five minute work day baby exactly are they planning on a long rest immediately Um, are they trying to save everything they have for maybe the big impactful fight Mm -hmm. and they're very conservative up front Um, are they fighting and then immediately retreating are they pushing on haphazardly and and not really paying attention to their resources you know what's their approach to the game because every group is a little bit different yeah and a lot of that will depend on their previous play style but i've noticed that after a group has been playing together long enough those play styles eventually sort of merge into one so when you're at a particular table with a particular group of people you sort of know that, hey, we take it a little more cautiously or for the most part, we really like to plan things out well rather than kicking in a door and just seeing what's there. Yeah. Like, for example, our group, with the sole exception of Susie, (sighs) will not spend a single non-renewable resource at the beginning of the day. Like, you have to throw three or four encounters at our group before we'll stop using cantrips. Like, it needs to be a real threat before we will use anything that we can't get for that boss fight because we're saving everything to go 
Nova <laughs> on the most important thing that we're going to fight that day. Yeah. And then as soon as we get an inkling that it is a boss fight, like everything comes out, right. which means actually it's sometimes kind of easy to trick us into blowing yeah. everything. That, that is one thing where we're <laughs> relatively easily tricked, uh, right. but then we will immediately retreat as far as we need to to rest. Right. Whereas Susie is, um, I use call lightning. Right. Exactly. She will, she'll use whatever's the right answer for the situation we're in without making it any harder on herself than it needs to be. <laughs> like, well, you and I will gut it out with cantrips, and she's like, I got three third-level spell slots. I don't care. Right. Sometimes it's like, what, a rest? I don't want to rest. No, no resting. Yeah. I still have all these slots I didn't use. Right. <laughs> but from there, right, once you understand what their style is, uh, you start to build your encounters and, and plan series of encounters that will challenge them. So if they hoard their resources, you might be able to throw sort of high damage, low hit point enemies at them that force them, you know, kind of scare them uh, into using their abilities early, which works a lot on us. And if they're the type that blow their resources very quickly, you can give them extra deadly encounters early on. And then later at the end of the adventuring day, give some weaker ones that they just sort of need to slog through. Right. Uh, that also means likely you need to ensure that they have a rest before they fight the BBEG or they're going to be depleted and walk in and get wiped. Or the telegraph early on, hey, you might not get a rest. Or, hey, do you want to charge forward or do you want to take a rest? Right. Yeah. Uh, now, keep in mind, challenge does not mean uh, refute. You know, if you know, you know how your players play, don't build encounters that are specifically designed only to sort of stymie them and screw them over. You want it to be challenging but uh, achievable. I think within D&D, for example, within the uh, the CR system, right, you've got sort of levels of difficulty of your encounter. I think you should also look relatively realistically at how the players are performing against given difficulties. So if they are regularly beating deadly encounters, go beyond that, right? Um, if they're struggling because they aren't using great tactics or they aren't managing their resources well, obviously you want to tone that down, right? So who cares if they're level three and only able to consistently defeat CR2 challenges? The story still works. <laughs> no one is keeping score and saying, oh, well, this adventuring party is inferior to this hypothetical adventuring party in somebody else's game. It's all about making the story work for them, right? So if they get to fight skeletons for a little bit longer, who cares? That's their story. Yeah. And if it turns out that the way that they're spending resources is sort of like a, a one and done, you know, like you you throw out your, your big guns or your encounter ending power and they're steamrolling, you know, very high CR encounters, then spread it out. Maybe it doesn't need to be one like CR5 encounter. It's two CR3 encounters. Mm -hmm. That means like that rage the Barbarian's Rage only works for one of those battles. Right. Because they're going to save it for something else. Yep. I think it's important not to, like as you said, not to refute, right? You're not fighting against their style. You're trying to create challenges that make every encounter fun for their style. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason that they probably have that style is it works for the game that people have been playing. And if you're the GM and have been doing this for a while, it's probably because of the way that you GM. Right. So mixing things up actually sort of keeps things fresh mm -hmm. and keeps people from getting bored or stale or, or, you know, okay, we roll initiative and now I know that the first round of every single combat, here's what I do. Right. Which is the fourth edition thing, right? It's like, <laughs> what's the most expensive power I'm going to use this fight? Cool, I use that round one. <laughs> like, what's the next most use expensive power? Use my best power? encounter yeah. power. 
Make sure I use my minor action attack. Right. Make sure that I shift into position. Yeah. Debate on using my daily. <laughs> Do you think we're going to fight anything else? Are we going to fight anything else? Wait, we're getting an action point after this. Okay, I use my action point. Right. <laughs> and then as far as the players leveling up their abilities, um, first of all, keep in mind, B-series usually level up alongside players, so just continue to advance through your challenges, right? Like give them the next most difficult creature. Yeah, that you can sort of shoehorn into the believability right. of like where they are. Or actually just reskin it, whatever. Yeah. You know? But then keep in mind that there's different tiers of power, specifically in D D, but in lots of games where like you sort of you unlock abilities that are now make you feel significantly more powerful. Uh, when you change tiers, you kind of have to go through that rebalancing process again. Some players get that iconic ability they were waiting for, and all they want to do is use that. So they may change their play style as they level up, and you just always want to keep an eye out for how are they behaving and what's the right way to challenge them. Yeah, so just pay attention to like the game that you're playing. When is it that play styles or abilities ramp up? Mm-hmm. So we've talked about this before, but for 5e specifically, right around level 5 when people are getting extra attack or third level spells... Uh, the game changes significantly. So do some of these test encounters. Uh, one, it gives your players an opportunity to try these out and see how it works, right. right? Like when you get two third level spells at fifth level, you're like, wow, I can cast Fireball twice a day, but I can only do it twice a day. Right. So many players tend to hoard them. And then like if you only do the one, you, you only actually got to try it out once a day because then you got that rest you didn't expect. So there aren't those opportunities to actually use it. So give them opportunities to, to try them out, to sort of stretch their legs a bit, and that'll also help you gauge how well they're using these abilities and, and like what their play style is going to be. Yeah, and, and the way you help them out by doing that is by giving them an encounter that you understand is not going to be significantly threatening but also telegraphing to them that they will have a rest afterwards, right? That they will be resetting their abilities. So if it's it happens, you know, perhaps interrupting them in the middle of a rest is a great time to do this because, hey, look, I know I'm only going to have to fight this fight. And then I, you know, in two hours we wake up, it's dawn, and we're back to full. Right, unless our DM is a huge jerk, this isn't going to get interrupted again in 10 minutes. Right, exactly. Or, you know, we've just gone through a long trek. We are inside of the castle. We know as soon as we get inside the walls, we are safe. Now we are attacked. Exactly. So what are some things that GMs can do to help players manage their resources without feeling like you're playing the game for them? Well, you want to try to understand why it is that a particular player might be struggling with resource management. It could be that they just don't know the, the abilities that are on their sheet, Maybe they're a new player. Maybe it is a character class that they'd never played before. I think actually that happens with most of us. Yeah. Or a lot of players just don't care. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like for a lot of players, like what's on the sheet is interesting and fine. And I'll, I'll engage with the rules as much as necessary. But like my character is more than what's on the sheet. So I might have an ability tucked away in there that I didn't even realize existed or did anything useful. And if you don't point it out to me, I'm lost. Which functionally is the same as not having the ability right. or forgetting that you had the ability in the first place, right. <laughs> which is what a lot of people do. Even if they are into the ability, like especially at higher levels, you sort of forget that there are nine different actions that I could potentially take. And yep. I know 17 different spells. Right. This was huge in previous editions where actually part of the reason that I actually optimized characters in fourth edition 
to have static bonuses. Yeah, yeah, instead of more <laughs> options. Because right. they're hard to keep track of. Uh-huh. And uh, things that only lasted like one round or one encounter. It was just, oh, good, I can put this on my sheet and forget it. Yep. Um, I, I know that I personally had multiple misplays as a rogue in uh, Dark Sun, like, because I was a Blade Singer rogue, and it just, uh, it was a very ticky tacky sort of approach <laughs> to surviving combat when you're underpowered for a while. And I often missed, like, the right combination of abilities to maximize damage or avoid getting my beautiful hair singed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you can steer players in the direction of things that they don't need to remember. Um, A plus one to attack is effective all the time, and it's impossible to forget because you just change the number on your sheet. Yeah, so that's that's something uh, when you're giving rewards, right, is, is give rewards that get written down once and always affect and then so as long as you've updated your attack bonus it doesn't matter where it comes from and then it becomes a non-issue for pacing right Um, i think in a lot of games it's easy to forget all of the available actions i'm thinking in dark heresy i was just gonna say yeah yeah. (laughs) like there's there's so many like strange types of attacks or special special actions that you can take that influence the fight like sometimes we just have to agree not to use overwatch because then we would have to figure out those rules again (laughs) (laughs) and no grappling right (laughs) in instances like this feel free to suggest to your players that they do a particular kind of action available in the game yeah like you don't call shot that often in in dark heresy but there are instances where it's extremely effective yeah and if a GM is like, oh, remember that you can call the shot. That's super helpful. Yep. And and I think encouraging that above-the-table discussion uh, mm-hmm. with your players, uh, the, the type of thing where a player could say, hey, look, I'm trying to figure out what I can do here, right? Like, my goal is to disable this enemy. Like, what's my best way of doing that? Is it a called shot to the leg? Is it using a hold person spell? Is it um, trapping them with a, with a, with a net? Right. I, I don't I don't know what game we're playing here that has all of these three things. <laughs> but, Eclipse phase. Right, yeah, barely. <laughs> um, but, but the point is, like, a player may not know all the options available to them, but might have a goal in mind, right? So if you encourage that kind of open discussion, as a group, you can kind of solution the rules to figure out what's the best thing for my character to do, given that goal. Yeah, it takes a lot of pressure off of you as a GM, actually, because other players at the table can make suggestions. And that could even be in character. And and the, the player is still ultimately making the choice, right? The the choice was, my goal is to do this, right? Help me implement that. Mm-hmm. Tell me what dice to roll. Right. Like, I don't care if you're telling me to roll, like, the D8. I decided that I wanted to roll. Right. I think uh, every single session of Dark Heresy that we play, right around 8.30 or, some, or sometime, someone looks at the clock. And then it's like, oh, yeah, we should start using our fade points. Yeah. Because we're, we're like halfway through the session. And they refresh every session. <laughs> right. And then half of you are like, oh, but I only had one fade point. So, <laughs> so it actually doesn't matter to me. Okay, you wait till 930. Right. <laughs> and I think another resource management challenge for players is that a lot of people just hate the ticky-tacky accounting. Um, you know, like part of the original question, right? Like, how do I make tracking food more interesting, right? Um it's just not really fun to like keep a tally of ammunition or like, do I have this general adventuring gear that every adventurer should have? Did I think to write that down on my sheet or are we almost out of rations? 
a lot of times players aren't there for that element of the game if the game isn't about that element, you know? Right, zombie survival game, yeah, always track rations. Right, super spy thriller, I don't really care where your meal comes from, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Like, so understanding what their preferences are around that I think is important too. Yeah, if you think about even in our Dark Sun game, which is specifically gritty, happens in a desert, resources are scarce, you're using crappy items... We were tracking things like ammunition probably for six or seven sessions, Mm -hmm. right? Like we were actually very good about writing down every single piece of loot that we got. Right. Because we were carrying around in the wagon. Like, oh, we have a spent arrow trap, Yep. you know, but the arrow's still good. (laughs) Okay. Well, now I have 23 arrows. Right. Perfect. Uh, We have one live tortoise. Right. I think we still have that live tortoise, actually. (laughs) I hope someone's been feeding it. (laughs) But... Like after a certain power level, um, it's just not worthwhile anymore. Right. Because you have a certain amount of gold or whatever, you can just go buy more or replace it or magic it into existence yep. or whatever. It always felt to me like um like in a lot of computer role playing games, like as you hit that open world element of the game, right? Like all of a sudden, generally gold isn't that important anymore. Like, if you want it, you can buy it, right? But, like, in the very early levels, mm-hmm. a lot of times you need to go kill a couple monsters to get some gold to buy that loot that you're looking for so that you can advance the plot. Right, you got to sell the broken short sword for three gold pieces, right? you know, so that you can eventually earn enough to buy the boiled leather armor. Right, yeah. but then, like, ten levels later, you don't even pick up the broken short sword anymore because it's not worth your time to have to tote it back to town to sell it for three gold pieces right because you deal in thousands of pieces. and when you first start a character it actually is fun for like an hour or two to be like oh i'm gonna grab everything man right. i'm gonna go back and sell it oh i finally got 94 gold pieces this is awesome yep and then after that it's super boring right <laughs> so <laughs> stop <laughs> right so i think where this kind of comes to a dissonance in the game is where what would be very important to a character um isn't important to the player and like there's a conflict in that knowledge right like so my character traveling across the desert is very interested in where his next meal is coming from or where water is coming from but i'm a player of a 12th level pc and i gotta be honest i don't want to deal with that that seems very like basic and boring to me when i should be you know trekking across this desert chasing um the big bad and and i'm trying to gain on him and hunt him down and I just described the beginning of the Dark Tower. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if you think about it, okay, the drama of the session and of the game now is chasing the big, the big bad and getting there. And if she drops, you know, minions or uh, a, a giant like dust storm in your way and you can't, you know, you don't succeed against getting around it or, or fighting it off that's part of the drama you know the, that is a failure that makes sense and that uh, adds to the story but mm-hmm. oh man we didn't bring enough rations and so we starve in the desert chasing the, the bad guy like that's boring mm-hmm. yeah so so meeting the players halfway on that sort of thing and then getting into some of the other stuff as far as abilities are concerned right not not low level item tracking but but more foundational abilities for characters right if you perhaps notice that last game the cleric had an ability that would have really helped um i would suggest before the next session mention that uh if you mention it after the session it's just going to be forgotten in the week in between but you know it's it's okay to have that kind of above the table conversation beforehand of like hey i realized after the session that you had an ability that might have been useful like maybe read about your channel divinity again because i I think you forgot about it 
Yeah, that's the thing that can happen in those follow-up emails, sort of like as a recap, and then, oh, also, I noticed you could have done this thing, which would have been cool. Right. You know, as always, kind of good table manners, right? When you're making suggestions during the game, I think you have to be pretty careful about that, especially for more sensitive players who don't want to feel like you're trying to control their character. Um, But if you've got the kind of open discussion at your table where you can make suggestions without them feeling burdensome, like, sure, like, hey, I think you're trying to do a thing. Don't forget, this is available to you, right? Like, (laughs) your wand uh, can cast slow if you're chasing him. Your Eldritch Blast does two hits. Right. Not just one. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You have extra attack. (laughs) (laughs) Which was a problem for a certain bard that I know. (laughs) Okay, so Shane, uh, are there any Shane-specific tips that you have for GMs? Like a a favorite thing you like to do? I like resource cards for any and everything. And I'm a lazy GM, so I don't often make them. And also, I kind of assume you guys will figure it out on your own. But for con games especially, I love making cards that are like a a physical, tactile representation at the table of abilities so that players don't forget them. Yeah, or tokens or something like that, right? Um, That's one thing we always talk about with like Fate or even uh, Deadlands, right? The bennies in Savage Worlds. Like they have different colors and they're supposed to be poker chips. Mm -hmm. And part of that is that they're a physical representation in front of you so you don't forget them. Yeah, and I like that... When they are things like that, cards or chips or something, people players will tend to hold them in their hands and fidget with them mm-hmm. and look at them, and it's always on their mind right. because it's right in front of them, and they can't ignore them even if they wanted to. Right. So to go back to the original question, right, of like how can you make tracking rations less accounting and more interesting? Well, if if you've decided you're going to track rations... Like, I would make them cards. Like, I would give everyone, like, their inventory has ration cards. And each card is one ration. And so during your long rest that day, right? Okay, everyone, I need a ration card from you. Your inventory goes down. And you now see, oh, I had four. I now have three. And no one is mistaking how many are on their sheet. No one is forgetting to mark one down or whatever. Like, you are physically collecting them from everybody. And if somebody can't collect it, then you have to deal with that. Yeah, and that works even for something that isn't a physical object, like a ration, right? Like barbarian rages, Mm -hmm. you know? I've got three rages a day. I have three cards or tokens or whatever. They're right in front of me. Uh, I rage. I hand over the card or the token. It's it's very visceral. Mm -hmm. You look down and go, oh, two rages left. Yep, I am spending my resource. (laughs) Uh, The the Cypher System game that I played at a catacomb last year with Darcy Ross that I've said is my favorite superhero game we talked about it a couple weeks ago um i think she well i think i know she handed out physical cards for xp like the the reward process of cypher system i know that turning in those cards felt like more dramatic for me as i was doing a re-roll right Mm -hmm. like instead of marking it down on a sheet i was like no throw my card in the middle like i'm re-rolling this or i'm assisting or i'm helping you in some way like we're gonna make this thing cool and i just here's my card to prove it yeah and it sort of brings the entire table in right on it and just sort of puts in everyone's heads oh i have that resource too right or my own resource of, of whatever kind yeah one of our favorite games is phoenix dawn command and i think there's a there's something about having the hand of cards that you're playing in combination that makes that a little more visceral a little more fun and 
gamey, you know. Mm-hmm. And then also the tokens for spirit, which you can hand in to do things, right? Depending on the class that you are. Yep. So that's that's my tip. Um, do you have any recommendations, Ishan? Uh, yeah. Well, my first one is uh, like you, I am lazy. Uh, so when it comes to things like long rests, I tend to shoot for having that just at the end of the session. Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> you don't want to you don't have to track where everyone is across a week or two weeks or a month. Right. You know, for the next session, it, it, it's even if people really want to do that, someone is going to like lose their sheet or like forget to write down how many hit points they had or how many hit dice they had left yep. or whatever. Or you know? we run into a thing where, because, you know, we don't pause our game when somebody isn't there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have somebody who comes in fresh, mm-hmm. like full HP, full abilities when everybody else has been slogging through five encounters. And it's like, Hey, how did that guy get all shiny? Like we're all like covered in mud and blood. This is garbage. Right. So if, if you sort of go in with the mindset and your players know that you have the mindset of wherever we kind of are at the end of this session, I'm going to plan a long rest because it's just easier for everyone. Mm-hmm. Then that gives everyone a very good sense right off the bat of like when they're going to get a rest. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to do it that way, but it, trust me, it makes bookkeeping so, so much easier. Which is half the battle at a lot of role playing games. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that I highly advise is make stuff up. You know, you can go in and just just gauge how your players are doing in a battle. Because, you know, it's usually a battle in which their resources are being tested. It's not usually the exploration pillar or, like, role-playing out the social interactions during the, the banquet. Right. You know? Um, so that would be an interesting resource. There's only, like, so many name drops you can put in <laughs> before you get, like asked to leave the party because you're very very rude <laughs> you you spent uh six xp on creating new contacts um you're out of those you you can't just pull a name out of your ass anymore right <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah if if your players are starting fresh and the first combat they steamroll great if the second one they also steamroll then you know maybe you can either throw in another one or make the second one or the third one harder right? right like pacing and difficulty are sort of two sides of the same slider right you know you can just all your the whole point of pacing is to make them spend those resources and you can do that all at once just by make giving them a really tough or a relatively easy encounter which we've talked many times before you can change on the fly in the middle of a combat i will take one issue with something you just said that mm-hmm. pacing is is about the difficulty because you've also got adventure pacing and, and narrative pace and, and those sorts of things, right? So you want to keep that in mind too is like just another layer of complexity. Of oh, like, yeah. When we're talking about resource management. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's mostly combat. But, Story pacing is a different kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we've got an episode on that. We've done 113 <laughs> others. I hope one of them was covering that. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about what players can do to manage their resources. I think the main reason that you do this as a player is to feel like you are bringing your best to each encounter. Not just combat, but, you know, any uh, difficulty you might face in the game. Yeah, for me, I think of it as, like, how can I best play my character, right? If my character is competent, I I need to make sure he is portrayed as competent. The biggest thing for players is that you are always ultimately reacting to the GM. The way that you make your choices is informed by the way your GM presents challenges. 
which is a really metagamey thing to think about, but that's just the reality of it is the game that you play is the one the GM brings. Yeah, if your GM is Ishan, you know that there's a 90% chance that... Of time travel. <laughs> there's a 100% chance of time travel. There's a 90% chance that at the end of the session, you're getting a long rest. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but you also want to understand, like, how much does your GM tailor encounters to your group versus, you know, just running straight out of a published adventure that's going to be assuming you behave a certain way versus just letting random encounters and see where the dice roll. Um, you know, like a Westmarch's kind of hex crawl game. Yeah, I've noticed published encounters tend to not give you that many rests. No, they, okay. they tend to push you a little further, but overall I think the encounters are simpler. Mm. A, a Westmarch's game, you could very easily end up in a situation where you have to retreat and being able to retreat from it may even be in doubt. Um, whereas like, I think if you, if your GM is really tailoring adventures, you, you know, you've always got a fighting chance, right? Like, you know, that combat is always a fair option unless they've very heavily foreshadowed that combat is not a fair option. Yeah. Probably the easiest thing to do when you're facing a scenario where you're not sure, you know, exactly how hard do we need to try here or, you know, how much force do we bring to bear is just to make your decision in character. Which sounds really simple, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> what would my character do? That's why I always try to play a tactical character. Right. It was like, well, I can only do this three times a day. <laughs> right. Is this one of those times? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, if your character is reckless and hot-headed and, you know, would charge into combat, then if you're not sure, like, default to that. Yeah, sometimes it's fun to, I mean, you wreck three encounters and the fourth one you are spent and you kind of suck that's kind of fun to role play yeah and then i think keep in mind uh, how much your gm is accommodating your play style if you are continually running against very big threats that uh you need to kind of carefully strategically muster and manage your resources and and it's very challenging your foolhardy character should probably wisen up pretty quickly Mm. or you are likely telling the story of a character who was born to die right that probably won't last long and then the next character you roll up should probably be a bit wiser or or not and will end up equally dead (laughs) that's a perfectly fine character arc and then it's on your party why do we keep replacing them with someone equally foolhardy because they are foolhardy and we're alive (laughs) (laughs) we didn't bring a 10-foot pole we we don't have to pay them their share we bring a new player right Uh, yeah, and then for that type of game, right, where it is going to be grittier, more challenging, more tactical, um, you, you're probably better off just starting with a character with, uh, with a degree of confidence and survival instinct. Yeah. Now, I will say, for players who are like us and really want to find that perfect equilibrium of using the exact right amount of force, right, the least amount of force that is most effective to defeat the encounter... Mm-hmm. Um, keep in mind that holding back all the time actually can one make things less fun because encounters take longer, which means you can't get to like the fun role play stuff. Right. Uh, but also can be uh, less effective in the long run because if you could use one spell to just end one enemy, then they're not causing any damage. Uh, they're not d- distracting your, you know, DPR from a- any other creature. I, blowing one second level spell on hold person is probably much more effective than like shooting with your your cantrip the whole time it's a better expenditure of resources in the long run yeah and that's the 
That's the thing to always keep in mind is that the character who limps into a long rest with all slots expended and one hit point ends up in the exact same place as the character who rolls into that long rest with every hit point and not a single spell slot spent, right? Like tomorrow morning you wake up and you are back to full. (laughs) Right. If I get to the end of the day and I've got high level slots that I have not used, I failed somewhere along the way Yeah, because I could have been more effective. Right. And yeah, tomorrow morning it did not matter. Yeah. You played magic back in the day. Mm Mm-hmm. You were definitely a blue player because you like control. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was also a control player. (laughs) A lot of times, like RPGs kind of assume you're going to be more of a tempo player, Mm -hmm. right? You're always going to kind of use your resources, use the best resources you can every turn um, to to continue moving forward towards your goal. and, And, you know, life is a resource. Hit points are a resource. Cards are a resource. Abilities are a resource. Like you will use them all and be exhausted at the end of it, but you will ultimately win. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas we're like, yeah, but I always need more options. <laughs> like I don't want to use an option and close off a path ever because I might need that path later. It's why I want a ring of spell storing. Right. <laughs> if I have extra slots at the end of the day, I'll just save them for later. Look at the staff of power. It has so many options in it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you'll have more fun if you play less defensively and you know you might it might be more dangerous but that's part of the fun it's part of the drama yeah so whatever you decide to do it is pretty in character for most adventurers to try to maximize the effect of whatever it is they're doing with a particular action you know focus fire on the biggest threat obviously right and and keep in mind you know that biggest threat might actually be a large group of weaker threats (laughs) Uh, oh wait you said you had uh two fireballs per day yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about Turn Undead. (laughs) GMs, this is one of those opportunities where you can sort of uh, throw out some bait for a player, right? I really want you to use that fireball. Or I really want to teach you how to use that fireball. Right. (laughs) Uh, Swarm of goblins. Yep. So I think the conclusion to draw here for, for both players and GMs is like, the longer a group plays together, you end up finding sort of an equilibrium between the way the players want to play and the way the GM wants to run the game and challenge them. It just takes a few sessions to get there, and both sides of the equation are always trying to kind of course correct to to sort of get back into equilibrium as, as things change. Yeah, and then once you've found that equilibrium... Break it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get new abilities or throw new monsters. <laughs> yeah, l- let it uh, be steady state for a little while, and then don't let people get comfortable. Switch it up. Right. Do you hear that, Ishan? Uh, I overcorrected and killed my entire party. It's time to move on to the character creation forge. We're gonna need a lot of them. We're gonna need to reroll, <laughs> or at least revivify. <laughs> Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane. At Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us if you can fit it into 140 characters at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. So this week in the Character Creation Forge... We have a pun! <laughs> as, as we so often do... <laughs> We are building the pacemaker. Because we're talking about pacing. Right. Pacing. Right. Yeah. 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 But uh, we aren't talking about the pacemaker for the race who leads the pack and sets how fast the group runs. 
We are, of course, talking about the anachronistic device that jumpstarts your heart. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a character who must uh, use lightning and electricity and do a little bit of healing. Yeah, they'll bring you back. Maybe not with the lightning. Right. <laughs> but they can do both. Right. All right, so what's the build? Storm Sorcerer 14, Tempest Cleric 6. I don't think we've actually put these two together, which is a little weird because they, they like made for each other. Well, we were looking for the perfect pithy name for this character. Oh, of course. And then we right. finally found our inspiration. Been on the back burner. Yeah. yeah. All right, so from Cleric, you're going to get Heavy Armor. Uh, Wrath of the Storm, which allows you to use a reaction to deal to deal two d eight lightning damage when you're hit. Uh, although they get to make a saving throw, and that's uh, e- number of times equal to your wisdom modifier. You've got a channel divinity option, which is really sort of the the bread and butter of this build. Which is uh, one, and then eventually two times per short rest, you can max out the lightning or thunder damage that you deal. And then at level six, you'll also be able to push a creature ten feet when you deal lightning damage. And, of course, you'll get Revivify. Um, you're not going to get Resurrection. Nope, because that's not how pacemakers work. Nope. <laughs> they're, they're generally used for people who haven't been dead too long. <laughs> All right, Sorcerer is going to get you some metamagic options, and you'll be able to fly a short distance after you cast a non-cantrip spell. Uh, you can also deal lightning damage to any creature uh, within 10 feet when you cast a lightning spell. And at level 14, you get Storm's Fury, which is cool because it's kind of an upgrade of Wrath of the Storm. Basically, unlimited number of times per day as a reaction, you can deal your sorcerer level of lightning damage on a hit. Keep in mind that this damage will trigger a 10-foot push from your cleric ability, and then also it gives you a strength saving throw to push them another 20 feet on a fail. So when you are hit... You can deal some lightning damage and push things. When you cast a spell that deals lightning damage, you can deal lightning damage to creatures around you and, and push, push them away. And two times per day, you can maximize the amount of damage that you're doing with a spell that's dealing lightning. For example, a chain lightning, which does 10d8 damage. So you just to up to four targets and just max that for, you know, 80. Yeah. I point at you, 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 and you. They get a save, but, you know, sure. <laughs> still it's 40 damage coming your way on a success. Also works nicely with Call Lightning, mm. and uh, a straight-up Lightning Bolt can actually do a bunch of damage because you're hitting everyone in that line. Right. And, you know, you could upcast it. It doesn't uh, scale quite as well, but still, dropping 48 damage to, you know, this entire rank of troops is great. Yep. So uh, what order would you take these levels? I think I'd probably start off Sorcerer and go straight to five in order to get a Lightning Bolt. Mm -hmm. And then maybe just knock out those Cleric levels. Yep. Um, Get straight to being able to use that Channel Divinity twice per short rest. And then finish out uh, Sorcerer because we'll get those higher level Sorcerer abilities, but we can be maximizing them that whole time. Yeah, I mean, I think whether you start Sorcerer or you start Cleric, you definitely want to go to either five or six either level is a good place to hop off and then finish out the other one Mm. Uh, there's kind of not a wrong way to build this character it's pretty straightforward (laughs) yeah don't split the classes too much too early or it's going to take you forever to get asis or uh, decent level spells right get to third level spells and then you're good with whatever so ishin who is your pacemaker I think my pacemaker is a mad scientist. Oh, Dr. Frankenstein, if you will. Uh, a bit, yes. Frankenstein. 
Oh, now you're pronouncing the German on this show. <laughs> Truly, we are in uncharted territory. Uh, it is uh, apparently uh, infectious. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, yes, I think she has a macabre fascination um, with how electricity animates the mind and the body and how it has the power to both uh, kill and to heal. Oh. Mechanically speaking, it means that uh, she probably takes Quicken uh, so that she can use those lightning spells as a bonus action, mm-hmm. um, which means that she can, for example, um, blast someone with a Quicken Chain Lightning and then drop a cantrip like Spare the Dying to stabilize someone else over here. Or even blast you with Chain Lightning and stabilize you. Right, right. Because, you know, I would like to interrogate you yeah. with shocking grasp. <laughs> Live, damn it. Live. <laughs> Don't you die on me, <laughs> BBEG. Um, yeah, so I think um, she's probably a weird one. It just doesn't quite understand, especially early on, that electricity, uh, like lightning, doesn't always make everyone feel great. Yeah, right. <laughs> hey, cool, I can see your skeleton. Huh. Might even be one of those types who, uh, on occasion, is positioning a lightning bolt so that it hits her because you know you get resistance to lightning damage right you know so it hurts less but i think it tickles it tickles it's kind of nice you know may even choose herself as a target of a chain lightning why not it's what feeds me it's it's the power so yeah i got i'm playing a weirdo what about your pacemaker so my pacemaker actually starts out as a cleric um and and as a priest as a worshiper of a deity of the storm and at some point i i would imagine that uh Tempest clerics are not well known for their healing capabilities. It's not a big focus for them. Very true. It wouldn't even surprise me if she was the only priest in her temple who even learned Revivify or ever prepared it. The first time she used it, maybe didn't even understand it, but did become very fascinated by the the healing properties of lightning, of the storm, of that power. And that maybe she interprets it as sort of a, an, an internal calling uh, towards the lightning. So the first time she uses Revivify, it's kind of an awakening of her inner power. And then she, she kind of continues to pursue that lightning sort of storm origin. And she, she begins to realize that she doesn't worship a deity of the storm. She worships the storm itself. I love the idea that in game, she's like over a... a what appears to be dead body and like is you know shocks it right yeah. and then that brings them back to life and mechanically you're like okay instead of casting shocking grasp i'm casting revivify right or like i don't know that i'm doing that right right <laughs> and then that like sets sits on a whole path now i am i'm looking for my inner deity not uh worshiping some deity from beyond i'm gonna make a storm and you're all gonna worship it right <laughs> Okay, so before we wrap up, I want to take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Uh, Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. We're recording this pretty far in advance, so it's difficult to be sure, but I'm pretty sure we've hit the $200 uh, total monthly at this point. So we are working on the Character Creation Forge Codex. Um, We've got a plan in place to outsource that, so it will be done much more expediently than some of our other rewards, but it will be coming. And keep an eye out for an email about t-shirt sizes if you're a $10 patron or higher. And have not seen it yet. It could be in your spam folder. So if you want to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. 
And what do we have planned for next week's episode? We've got another Plot Hooks Roundup episode. That was well received last time, and it's been a while. What's in the Character Creation Forge? Uh, we're going to be building Hercules. All right, that's it for episode 114 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name. But either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening.